Hello, everyone. Welcome to Dolls of Our Lives. This is the podcast where we're reliving the American Girl series, book by book. I'm Mary, and in a moment, you're going to hear from Allison. I'm coming to you to introduce this episode, which we had the privilege of recording a few weeks ago. Uh, We had the chance to talk to author and podcaster Kate Kennedy, host of Be There in Five, a great pop culture podcast, if you've not heard it. Um, But we interviewed her about her book, which is called One in a Millennial, on friendship, feelings, fangirls, and fitting in. And it's a really great collection of essays and kind of meditations on her own experience growing up as a millennial. So there's great essays on, you know, boy band culture, college, going to college, um, how the internet changed. You know, if you grew up on AIM, there's a great essay on that. You know, her own experiences, her own reflections, slumber parties versus sleepovers, and she notes an important difference there. You know, all kinds of great stuff. I really enjoyed reading this book and love the conversation you're about to hear we had with Kate about it. Um, So if you grew up a millennial, this conversation will be for you, but it's also for anyone who's, you know, just past childhood, who's starting to reckon with like, what did the pop culture we consumed do to us or for us? Um, You know, how do you make sense of your childhood as an adult? What do you look back on? What would you have done differently? You know, what do you feel nostalgic over? These are all the kinds of things that you'll find in One in a Millennial, which is a book that I really enjoyed reading. So that conversation is coming right up. Before we dive into it, though, I just want to thank everyone who's read our book, Dolls of Our Lives, Why We Can't Quit American Girl. We've really loved seeing um, the reviews that people are posting on Instagram and tagging us. We love to share those. So if you want to share your own review, please be sure to tag the show. We'd love to share it. Um, You know, thanks for everyone who's told us they've bought the book for a friend or bought it for a parent and are having like kind of a mini book club together or with their partners. Like that's just so heartening to hear. And we just so appreciate the support and any help that you guys have in helping us spread the word about our book. We really appreciate the support of this community over the past few years. It really means a lot to us. So we just wanted to check in and say, you know, we've been seeing it and we're so, so appreciative of it and of all of you. And with that being said, our next episode, we are going to pick back up with some Julie supplementals. We'll be reading Hoops by Matt Tavares. So if you've not checked that out, please do so. And we'll be chatting about that and more on our next episode. So without further ado, thanks again. And let's get into our conversation with Kate. Um, so Kate, thank you so much for being here. We're such an honored guest on our show. We were so delighted to be on your show and now to have you on ours. Like what a dream. Thank you for having me. I'm such a fan of your podcast. I love a swap and it's fun that we had both had books come <laughs> out within a short period of time. We're in the same phase of things. <laughs> yes. I see that you're about to start your book tour, which I'm very excited for you to get into that. That's like a really fun part of it, I think. Yeah, I think it will be fun. It's uh there's you know you write it and then you have to sell it and then you have to you know it's it's such a long process that by the time you get around to it coming out you realize you haven't really gotten to celebrate it and I'm really looking forward to just engaging in more of these conversations with people and yeah celebrating and criticizing our existence (laughs) yes absolutely and I, I found for me at least 
you know, even though Allison and I wrote our book together, it feels so solitary because we wrote as ours during COVID as well. So it was very locked down, happened in a Google Drive. So to actually see real living, breathing people and be able to talk to them about your book, it's such a rewarding experience. I'm really excited for you to have that. But I'm excited for us that we get to talk about your book today. Now, you made it kind of easy for us. You, you lead off with American Girl in this book. I mean, it's almost like you had us in mind. <laughs> I know. What's funny is I was trying, you know, when you have a podcast, it's kind of like the ultimate focus group for what people care about. And mm. I did a couple deep dives on American Girl, I think in 2021. And um, it was, I mean, above all the things I talk about that are, you know, much more pressing issues that I mean, hands down is probably what resonated with people the most. And I just it really made me understand how important the dolls were to people from like a consumer standpoint, but also from an experiential one that I think is unique to the millennial zeitgeist. Hmm. I don't think there are a lot of places where, you know, Jesse Spano and Kirsten Larson get to share space, but this is obviously one of them. Your <laughs> podcast is one of them. Something that's so delightful is you do really cool, almost like preambles before your podcast. And I think that voice and the way that you are able to talk about topics translates really beautifully into the book. Like they feel very similar while also being different. Like with the book, I can pause and I can think in a slightly different way, but one in a millennial feels like kind of an awesome companion to the podcast and different at the same time. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, it's it, the topics chosen are definitely based off of what I know resonated with millennial women from my podcast that I wanted to kind of honor and trigger in a good way people's memories through those uh, commonly held experiences told through my own. And um, I really, you know, I'm not a technical writer. I'm not a journalist by trade. Like I'm a creative writer. I, I write really wordy, windy sentences and talk in a pretty specific way. And I didn't know if it would translate to um, the page. And uh, I appreciate you saying that. It honestly means a lot to me because I, you know, it's not for everyone when you struggle to land a plane. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but I mean, to Allison's point, I felt like it's different, but expands on the podcast. Like it felt like I was listening to you talk to me as I was reading the book because I've listened to your podcast, obviously. So it felt like it was in the same family. And and in the first chapter, Limited 2, which I have to say, first of all, just to be fair, I've never I never shopped at Limited 2. I thought that my parents were like, that's too like bougie, like mm -hmm. you don't need that. And so to me, that was always aspirational. So I appreciated you kind of taking me back there, but also like bringing American Girl into that chapter because it's like those were aspirational as well. And sometimes, as you were just telling us off air, like even if you got American Girl doll, it wasn't necessarily the one that you wanted. Right. And that's what um, I feel like a lot of my experience with consumerism was in being kind of a spectator because I shopped mm. at limited to in terms of I like looked around at stuff. But yeah, it, the price points were high. And in, in that chapter, I mentioned how I found the perfect, you know, item under $5 to not commit the cardinal sin of leaving them all without buying anything, aka the Absolutely. goal of mall madness. And that's why I would buy the dollar like hand sanitizers at Bath and Body Works. Um, because stuff was expensive, but you wanted to get that kind of shoppers high. And uh, so I, I, sh I shared that with you in terms of uh, limited to being aspirational. And I often tell my parents that I'm appreciative for 
the tight budget because I think a lot of my memories were created in the longing and not in the having. Yes. I think that's a really interesting and important point. I also love the detail. I think you said your sister was part of a fashion show at Limited too, and that was like an MLM scam on the store's part to kind of get you interested. Yes, they they kind of took, I think, 90s girls' like obsession with supermodels, and they were like, do you want the chance to be a model? Don't send your photos to John Cabot or Barbizon. Like, come to Limited too, And they would, like, give you – a 15% discount on like elastic shorts and a matching top with like a pocket on the chest. And you and your friends would stand in the store window and model. But really, it was just, yeah, to give you a discount and bring your friends into the store. So they would spend money at limited too. And you really weren't modeling. But I thought it was so glamorous, (laughs) kind of like American Girl fashion shows. Anything in that realm felt glam. Absolutely. And it kind of brings on the real consumption is like the story you can tell about it. You have so many interesting things to say in this book about what it means to grow into girlhood and kind of what that space is. I think now the word tween does a lot of work in our culture for these like certain sets of ages, right, where you are literally in between childhood, adolescence and adulthood. And I've been seeing so much about 10 and 11 year olds, usually girls who are asking for really expensive makeup Mm, or there's sort of this trope about the 10 year olds who are being disruptive at Sephora or Ulta. And what's interesting to me is those tend to be standalone stores in a plaza where I live. They don't tend to be mall stores. So people are quite, you know, they're dropping people off and there's 10 year olds shopping, maybe buying expensive skincare Reading your book, it made me think about spaces that existed for girlhood to kind of be played out, whether it was problematic or not, that Mm. I think part of what we're seeing with the frustration around 10-year-olds asking for expensive skincare is the limited two doesn't exist anymore. Or Mm -hmm. Claire's Mm -hmm. maybe is skewing younger. I'm not sure about that. I feel like I would still shop at Claire's, but you know, just what are your your (laughs) thoughts on that? Because your book really brought up a lot for me thinking about girlhood spaces. Yeah, I I think that I in the book I say like where else can you like people where else are people on a leaf raking budget allowed to <laughs> like you know just loiter and right. you really do need somewhere to go before you can drive that you can be dropped off and like sink a lot of time there and yeah at first it was the mall and then that's I talk about how like later it became youth groups and I feel like that was kind of preyed on and um (laughs) but I I don't know what the third place is now for young people and I think that I opened the book talking about how I self-identify as an observer because I the mall was such an interesting fact-finding mission about the world, what you could learn at the stores, what you could learn from the people watching, from the food court. Like, I just, I loved observing how the adult, what the adult world was like that I didn't have access to. And I do think it's a little sad how annoyed people are in a Sephora with 10-year-olds because it's so important to let young people play and to let them explore. And while I understand you don't want them, you know, putting all the mascara on like their pink eye um i also like i think it's something's really there's an important message there of people seeking the same spaces at the same time in life even though the media and cultural landscape's completely different and i one of the things i read when i was writing this book was called the confidence code for girls and it talks about how between the ages of nine and i think 13 or 14 uh tween girls confidence plummets while young males rises 
And it's kind of a turning mm-hmm. point where you start to look more in mirrors and like less out windows, so to speak. It, it all goes back inward and you start to really seek a- external validation and how young girls are so rewarded for um, people pleasing and cooperative behavior and not risk taking behavior. Not a, There's not a lot of replenishing sources of self-esteem that you get from taking risk. So the focus becomes on acquiring social capital as a means to kind of combat that loss of self-esteem. And I think it's interesting that this day and age when I would think that there were more sources of people to feel empowered to be an individual and not just assimilate to the in crowd that girls are still doing that. But I don't think it's a bad thing. I think the acquisition of social capital, for me, it was a hobby in and of itself. But it's almost just charming that you know, even though my book's about one generation, there are the experience of girlhood, there are certain elements of it that transcend generations, where at that age is when you start to endlessly seek self-improvement through cosmetics or otherwise. Absolutely. And I want to actually follow up on two themes that you talk about in different chapters of areas that you look to for, I don't know if confidence or self-esteem is are the right terms, but you look for maybe direction, I would say. So one um, is called God Must Have Spent a Little Less Time on Me, which is an amazing chapter title. And um, next, I want to talk about the internet, but I'll leave that for a moment and instead talk about kind of your dabbling in a certain kind of Christianity as a, as a teen, I guess. Um, but this had many laugh out loud quotes to me. And it was also like a lot because I also was raised in Catholicism, different version of Christianity had similar issues with it that you go on to describe. So I just want to thank you because this really resonated with me. This chapter really resonated with me, but I want to read a line that made me laugh out loud when I read it. And it's about you going to a Christian summer camp, which already is like in hindsight, red flag for me, (laughs) maybe for you too. But they had water skiing, which I find incredible because none of the ones I ever went to did. But you write, I made my mark and was given a superlative at the end of the week. Most Christ-like at water skiing. On the back of the award, my camp counselor wrote, Katie, remember, water skiing is nothing and Jesus is everything. To this day, I cannot figure out what this award is supposed to mean. (laughs) And I just was so blown away by that. I mean, it really, it it brings you to a place in time. I mean, I'm sure that kind of thing is still happening, but it feels like a very millennial version of Christian Mm -hmm. camp that, you know, like, or gifting someone the Jesus, like holding a baseball bat (laughs) with you, like at their confirmation, like all of this kind of, it's a different kind of consumption, but just want to know if you could kind of share a little bit about that time in your life. I think that that award, I have it in my office somewhere. Um, it, it makes me glad you still have it. it. My mom laminated it. Um, it makes me laugh because it kind of illustrates the point that like, I grew up like obsessing over pop culture and like loving all of these, you know, allegedly frivolous, unserious or superficial things. But then it took on a new meaning when it's like I already felt kind of dismissed for it. But then you go into church spaces and people fully uh, say that the church is at war with the culture and and everything I liked and everything I was was of the world, which all of a sudden was like a bad thing. And right to be a good Christian, those are not things you should be focused on. My God, why focus on this life when you can focus on the afterlife? Um, and I felt like that award was like, I went there to water ski. I love the glamour of boat culture, of tubing culture. Again, the longing. Those aren't things my, you know, we we didn't, you know, frequent the lake. And um, yet there, there they were kind of reinforcing that. To be clear, this does not matter. 
only Jesus <laughs> matters. <laughs> and um, it just, yeah, it was kind of a metaphor wow. for me of that experience, feeling like I was opened up to this whole new vocabulary and way of thinking where it's like you're already struggling with confidence as it is, but then it's like to also tear down you know, your nature as a human in the name of like salvation is it's just kind of a tall order when you're just trying to get by. Yeah. Well, and also I think to your bigger point about girlhood too, like it's so frustrating or confusing as you write that, you know, on the one hand, you're getting this messaging about like what it means to be a good girl and true love waits and the purity rings. And that was like all our generation growing up. And on the other hand, it's like, well, you shouldn't be obsessed with your sex life, but then you also should be able to describe in like minute detail what your ideal <laughs> husband is going to be like, which I love that you noted you wanted someone who wore a watch or kept time because you're late. And I was like, wow, that's relatable and just so pure. But like that contradiction, I think like arriving at a point of like, wow, this doesn't sit right with me or it doesn't make sense is a real moment of like maturity or adulthood. But you're still a, a child in a lot of right. ways. And I wanted to write about it's like, obviously, I wasn't doing like an astute analysis at the time. But I wanted to write about how I recall feeling that tension, because I think it speaks to um, how confusing it is when you are coming into your own and you're under people's authority who tell you as if it's a fact, this is right, this is good. And you're experiencing the first examples of your gut instincts when you're you aren't aligning with what people are telling you is right and true and good. Yet, you know, a lot of organized religions actively terminate those thoughts, those doubts by labeling them as sins, as problems, as reasons you'll go to the devil's air fryer, as I like to say. So you're not even taught to honor your critical <laughs> thinking skills or your instincts in a way that I think is quite troubling. And yeah, I, I just wanted to write about that experience because it's not like I grew up in a cult or my parents were like crazy religious. Uh, but when you're sensitive and you're internalizing the things people are saying to you and you're, you know, literal eternity is threatened, of course, you're going to look into it, take it pretty seriously. And it affected me way more than I ever realized until I kind of like therapized through it when I was older. And I was like, how crazy is it that I went to camp to water ski, but <laughs> left with a, with a, you know, a lifelong baggage about sexual purity, <laughs> like wild. The, the price was higher than yeah, you thought. And, and, and I think that <laughs> I and I wanted to write about it because yeah, because I thought it would maybe surprise people. It's a the first couple chapters are light and nostalgic, uh, but it does take a darker turn toward the middle and end. But that was the experience of getting into my teenage years was kind of, you know, losing that wistful naivete and feeling like my confidence was meaningfully broken down by outside forces. Um, and I think that even if you weren't involved in youth groups or didn't go to church camp, there are so many ways that purity culture permeated secular spaces in the 90s and early 2000s. I mean, as evidenced with abstinence-only education being mandated from the late 90s till Obama in 2008. And I think that trickled into dress codes and uh, feeling a lot of shame about the shape of your body. And I just kind of wanted to draw, you know, tie in how I, I hoped it would be helpful or healing for people that experienced that, but also not totally irrelevant for people that hadn't. There's a section in that part of the book where you talk about how you went back and you actually looked at policies from the time to kind of 
measure up your lived experience with, okay, so what was the actual thing coming down from the president? I mean, for me, I always associate abstinence only with President Bush because that's like so much of how Mm -hmm. it was marketed to us. And reading your book from the historian of doing historical work or historical research, your book is basically the opposite of what we usually have to do. Usually we have to look at all these big picture, big frames and say, so what might a typical experience of a person who fits such and such category look like? And it seems like you were saying, okay, I kind of have this sense of how I fit into this world. I want to fact check the lived reality Mm. that I had. How much of the kind of behind the scenes was you doing some additional side research on historical context and how much of that was also about you talking to your family, basically saying, did I remember this right? Or do you remember this differently? Which might be, you know, another question. Yeah. You know, I think that part of the exercise was going through my memories and trying to understand which ones really made me a product of my time rather than like who I was it's kind of it was it's kind of the yes my nature but like the nurture of the culture around me and I think that I didn't even always know why I felt a certain way and so I had to go back and see if there what outside forces may have contributed to something and in some cases it was really obvious to me in other cases I would learn something about you know, how a certain policy or thing, you know, served as a touch point in ways that I maybe didn't even realize. So it was partially fact checking. But also, I journaled my whole life and my mom has saved everything I've ever done. And so I Mm. had the really unique opportunity of having an archive. Um, And I think sometimes Mm. we're like, why? How do you remember all of this? And part of it's having the archive and the journaling. And I even think the um, process of, or if you're a person that logs your memories in some way shape or form I think there's like a level of reinforcement there where you remember things a little better um but beyond that um it's always important for people to remember that I I'm a podcaster who talks a lot about pop culture and nostalgia so if I'm you know reciting to you off the cuff uh the plot of a you know Disney Channel original movie the 13th year um it's not because I have a strong memory it's because I probably looked it up last year and you didn't you know <laughs> so I think it's kind of a combination of my job has made me excavate a lot of my life and find memories and throughout podcasting my like even I was telling my mom I was doing this interview she sends me four pictures that in a timeline show me my process of getting an American girl. And um, so, yeah, I feel very lucky in that sense. Uh, Some people, you know, don't like to hoard, but it's been really special for me to have access to who I was. I just have to ask, so are your childhood diaries at your parents' house? Combination. You're so brave. I know. (laughs) Mine have been permanently destroyed by me. So, You know what, though? I think I was curating. I think that there, I think I mentioned this in one chapter that like, because of the Dear America series, sometimes I wonder if like, I was thinking about my diaries as if people would read them if I died. (laughs) Mm. Um, (laughs) And uh, they're not that juicy. Like, they're very emotionally honest, but they didn't contain a lot of juicy details that would get me in trouble. If anything, it would just make my parents take me to therapy, you know? So I think I knew that I wasn't doing anything too crazy or dehealing anything like sexual or illegal. Um, But yeah, there were a couple of them that I think 
that were a little alarming to read back and I'm sure would for my mom. But to my mom's credit, she like really has always respected my space. Like I believe her that she would have a pile of diaries and not read them. I threw out one of my diaries like when I was very, very young because I'd written about a a fight with a friend and I'd ripped out some pages and threw them in the trash after we had ended the fight. And years later, as an adult, I was going through stuff and my mom had gone in the trash and taken those pages out because she was like, it was so sweet and like so earnest that I didn't want you to like miss out on this voice. And so I, like Allison, threw away many of my diaries, but that is what I have left is what I like threw out at eight or whatever it was. Yeah, I, I love that. Like, I think that was really important to my upbringing is my parents never making me feel ashamed for my emotional responses um, and seeing value mm. in processing them. And I think that for, you know, a lot of people I know raised by boomers, the the attitude can kind of be like, it could be worse, suck it up, forcing perspective on people that have no means to have it. And it happens with, you know, boys a lot where you're just kind of told to suck it up. And I I love that my parents were like, no, you know, dig that hole, repel into those depths of your yeah. emotional experience. <laughs> <laughs> for yes. better or for worse. Yes. yes. I think like there's also a lot of writing about boomer parents now being like, boomer parents didn't get an emotional toolkit so they couldn't offer one so like people our generation are more willing to go to therapy which is also something you write about which i loved but now like as like senior citizens like these boomers are like kind of needing therapy and it's like they never got the toolkit what now it's like an interesting sort of like now they become the children kind of trajectory totally and and i also think there's something confusing that like one of the millennial stereotypes is like your parents told you you were so special paired with like the boomer kind of stereotype being that they had a very different style of parenting that like wasn't necessarily helicopter. And I don't really know how to feel about it, but like I I also think it's interesting that it was ever positioned that your parents telling you you're special is a bad thing. <laughs> like good. That's Parents yeah. should be telling their kids like, they're special. Why is that bad? <laughs> it's so strange. Well, and it's like, who positioned that as a slam? Is it like our grandparents who grew up in the Depression and were like, we lived through the Depression and the war. Like, we never told them they were special. So, like, they never should have told you you were special. I don't know. I mean, it's all painting in broad strokes. So yeah. it's hard to, like, it's, speak it's broadly about this. It's really just a discouragement this, but... of personal advocacy is, I think, at the heart of it. <laughs> I think your book really speaks to like that, that moment, right. Where you're trying to think about who you're going to be as a teenager. And we've talked before when you're seeing people who are actually in their twenties acting out teenagehood, and you think that's what you're going to be like, or you see the parent trap a number of times and you think that's what, you know, parenting might be like. I was recently listening to something about self-esteem I feel like self-esteem was like one of the key sets of buzzwords when we were younger and trying to figure out who we're supposed to be. And a lot of the research that was used on people our age about self-esteem came from work with very powerful CEOs, like the 1% of the business culture. And what was left out Mm. is that they had gained such high levels of self-esteem because they had tried 99 times and failed right? Mm. Like it was the one out of 100 and that's what built up their self-esteem. And we were given trophies for things sometimes literally that didn't make sense or didn't Mm. actually compute. Participation trophies. Yeah. Yeah. And that's part of that struggle that it was all of these mixed messaging. Not all of it was inherently bad, but where you, I think, kind of come through in the book with this, this set of ideas about girlhood is that 
as you got older and kind of aged out of that period or like stopped looking to those models, a lot of what you had loved was kind of dismissed as very silly or, you know, not not super important. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about like over the past few years, you've spent a lot of time like drilling down against that and kind of what that experience has been like having those conversations about girlhood as adults. Obviously, we can't relate to that at all. But, you know, imagine if we could first. I'm kidding. That's all we do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think, um, you know, to your point about self-esteem and and uh, I think the whole the book is kind of like a broader arc of like a breakdown and a building back up of self-esteem and I just think a lot about how I could have been like I have a lot of privilege and I was very well set up in many ways but like still really really struggled with my self-image and um, I think that you know it's not all of it but part of it is when we tell young people the things they like are unserious the way they spend their time is unimportant that tv rots your brain it's it's kind of that you know there was a theme where there's an unfavorable branding to common uh behaviors that are you know assigned to young women like if i was curious i'd be like nosy or a busybody if i love to talk with my friends into the depths of a night at a sleepover it's like ugh, gossip uh you know there's just a tendency to really paint something that isn't what it is is like undesirable and I think once I got older and I had access to a lot of um women that listened to my podcast I really wanted to like make it clear that you should be proud of the things you like the ways you spend your time you shouldn't let people that draft make believe football teams make you believe that your interests aren't important and <laughs> that all leisure is valid and um I think that i kind of loosely tie a lot of that ridicule um, and dismissal to confidence issues that I had. And I just kind of feel very strongly about, um, you know, helping women to honor their identity and who they already are, because so much of our days are bogged down by who we'll become or who we are to somebody else, like wife or mom. It's like, well, what about this great life you've already had and all the things, all the ways you spent your time? And right. to look back on that and be like, ugh, I was so young and stupid and unserious. And like, what a shame. You loved that stuff. So let's honor it as adults. Right. I, I want to kind of pick up on that and take us back to a topic I mentioned earlier, which is the Internet, because as much as you dismiss or dispel a lot of um, bad takes on what millennials are like, and I'm firmly a millennial, Allison is too. I think you guys are the same age. I'm from 1986. Sorry, I'm a, like a older <laughs> vintage, slightly older vintage. But I think something that is truly remarkable about our generation is we are the only people who remember what it was like before. They're the last generation who remembers before the Internet and after the Internet. And we were also tasked with both being the tech support and teachers of our (laughs) parents on how to engage with like I have visceral memories of like the AOL CD arriving at my house. We had a family Gateway 2000 computer, which I think you referenced having too. And like literally my mom being like, I'm curious, but also sort of scared. Like if I allow them to open this door, they might understand what's beyond it more than me. And then I won't be able to contain it. And of course, we're all hopping on AIM, as you write about. Like, you know, what was that like revisiting that time? Like, do you think that that's an important piece of who we are if we have any kind of traits as a generation? Yeah, I think that... um 
it's really interesting to think about us navigating the curating of an online persona without a blueprint and the implications yeah. of that being putting everything and anything on the internet, not understanding its immortality. Um, but the benefit of that, which I talk about in the chapter, you've got mail is I actually think that I cultivated a lot of my personality on AOL instant messenger and to our conversation about third places and safe spaces for girlhood. You know, when you're waiting in the waters of adolescent insecurity, like uh, I remember when I would talk to people in person and I was shy, like thinking about what I was doing with my arms and hands and like what my hair looked like. And I I just have these memories of, of not being able to form sentences in front of people, but like behind a screen or in a diary, I was, uh, you know, pretty verbally proficient. And it was a way for me to socialize and kind of sharpen my social saw and see that I could interact with and impress people and, you know, seduce men that wouldn't talk to me in person. But um, and it, I actually think <laughs> that aim is so much more important than we put stock in. It was like around for a long time. We never we don't really talk about it um, in ways that we say like social media happened and, you know, the late aughts and 2010s. And that's where we are now. But like aim was its own form of social networking yeah um, that was really important and it was I think cool for millennials because it was long form and I think we got more value out of it because instead of passively scrolling we were engaging and I mean I guess it's comparable to texting maybe but it also had that beautiful there's the beautiful part about I think a lot of our childhoods is they were a little bit more restrained it was like enough access but not too Mm much enough technology but not too much and I think that (laughs) Yes. Especially when millennial stereotypes were first uh, gaining traction. When I went into the workforce, I remember a lot of people just like making fun of us, like taking selfies and like always being on our phones texting. And I was like, I actually don't think that we're that tech obsessed. Most of us didn't get phones till we could drive or later. Like we didn't spend our childhoods, mm-hmm. um, you know, face buried in an iPad. And for that, I'm honestly grateful. I think it gives us balance and reminds me of the importance of having a, that sort of period of time with my own kids. And I don't think it's a surprise that millenni- a lot of millennials are uh, pushing back a lot on child privacy. And um, I feel like my friends are actually pretty strict with technology. And I think that when it was newer, the implications were maybe not known. Um, but I think millennials have seen the other side of the purity of being disconnected and are maybe going to implement that more with our children. Yeah, I agree. I also it, it seems so pure in a sense to read you wrote you printed out the lyrics to "It Wasn't Me" in your house, the Shaggy classic. What was my end game? Why? I, <laughs> why? I think I wanted and, to be able to sing along to it, and, and I wanted to be cool. Okay, <laughs> I understand. I get it. I mean, at, the curation of an away message, like no one alive who wasn't there, like you won't understand like what went into that. So I just have to ask, like. What were your favorite, can you recall like away messages, selections, curations of yourself that you're particularly proud of? I was, okay, I was just doing uh, an interview with like NPR, which also makes me laugh because it's such a serious audience and forum. And and I was asked about the art of like the screen name and the away message. And I was trying to explain that, and they asked me what the difference is between an away message and like a status update or an Instagram story. And to me, the, the real... Um, difference is that when we were growing up and in curating an online persona the name of the game was to 
make it look like you were living the dream, or to be as vague as humanly possible to get enough attention where people would be like, something's up, but not tell them what it was. It was it, there was really <laughs> no transparency. Yes. Now people are telling the internet I what things I would never even admit to myself, much less the entire world. So my away messages were always like this delicate balance of trying to really say something without really saying it. <laughs> um, and I, I don't, the one that like comes to mind is, um, which is weird because it's not like I'm a big train head or whatever their fan, fans are called. But I remember one day like being rejected by a boy and putting on my away message, you see her confidence is tragic, but her intuition magic. <laughs> no. I remember, see, you know how um, you could hide windows and it would show show you in black text that a bunch of people had IM'd you? Of I remember course. just like... Bam, 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 bam. People being like, you okay, girl? What's up? I think you're magic. And um, oh my God. That, that is just one that's memorable because magic. I think it's cringe, maybe because it's train. Maybe I thought I was really doing something because I lived in Virginia. Um, but I I think that oh, I was always trying yes. to find away messages that weren't like over quoted. I was aware of not being like other girls, you know? <laughs> wow. Allison, do you have any away messages that you can recall? that are memorable for you? Part of what your book brought back for me was I had a friend and she would print out choice conversations from the week. We didn't go to the same (laughs) high school. So we would talk on the phone at night, but she would prepare basically documents and we would print out very, very early online quizzes. We would print out our results so we could talk about it. And I had this Jean Mud M-U-D-D, messenger bag. And in the front of that bag, I would like fold up the things that I had printed at home to kind of prepare. And she had a more active dating life because I had zero dating life. And I remember, you know, we would we would pour over the conversations, kind of look for like cues we might have missed. And I look back and you do a great job in the book of talking about kind of the evolution of dating advice. He's just not that into you, had not entered our, you know, common parlance Mm -hmm. yet. And it should have, because we could have gotten all that time back. Like we were better (laughs) off watching (laughs) movies. We were very into like a small number of movies. Romy and Michelle's high school reunion Mm. has been making the rounds on TikTok. That was one of our movies. We would watch it endlessly, right? And kind of say like, this will be us at 28. That was not us at 28 (laughs) at all. But that's kind of what comes to mind. For me, it was the color. I loved changing the backgrounds and the colors. And I loved having a very clear, sophisticated font because I felt like people who overdid it were oversharing, right? Mm. By default, if you did too much, that was kind of tipping your hand. And I, I didn't care for that. But I always had Coldplay lyrics. That was always, always me. And I won't say too much on that because I still have very old traces of me on the internet tied to that. So some things on the internet oh, go wow. away. Some things do not. And for me, I always use Coldplay lyrics for handles. Oh. Not smart. Interesting. <laughs> it just screamed like depressed. I don't, I don't So I don't you know. were like N O one said it would be this hard like in the- <laughs> so can someone yeah. fix me <laughs> i did not do that i did not do that i will say i am not proud of this i did break up with people over aim and i oh, remember yeah. waiting to see what they would change their away message to and your book really brought back for me in a, a super visceral way the way that an aim message would flash when you had minimized it 
And when you said you were doing homework, but then you had all these flashes, you had to learn how to condense the alerts, right? The way that kids will put their phone on do not disturb. So you can't see that they're texting their boyfriend or girlfriend. Very similar thing. And I did need to concentrate sometimes. But yeah, I would have like eight messages going and say, oh, no, I'm on the computer for homework, which I was. But I love that that was something you understood that I said, because those are the details I really like. I feel like so often nostalgia is like inflatable chairs, lava lamps. It's like, well, yeah, of course. But the the experience, uh, I think, is so important. And I think the experience is what brings back people's memories sometimes more than the iconography. And yeah, notifications for me were just this feeling of suspense. I I can't liken to anything else. And and I think I say until I got a BlackBerry and waited for the red light to blink when my now husband would text me. Like, there's something about notifications that are like kind of magical and yes. butterfly inducing. <laughs> the right notifications. And the yes. sound. <laughs> oh, yeah. There is a website. I'll have to share it. But it has it's an archive of the sounds of early Internet Ooh. sounds. So it has like the you've got mail sound and the aim sounds and all these notifications that we don't have anymore. But when I hear them, just like in you write about you've got mail, the movie, when you hear that you've got mail, it takes you back. Like there's ways that sound just like access as a part of your memory that otherwise you can't get like the to. slamming of the door. And I was like, oh, my gosh. If that's Tyler. Wow. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's just, it's, it's so funny much. to look back on. Also, like, like people now with AI, it's like, guys, did you not have Smarter Child? Like, we've had bots <laughs> that we could talk to. I know. Alexa is kind of old news when you think about what Smarter Child. I mean, yeah, Smarter Child walks smarter so child is Alexa could too. get everything wrong. So somebody could run. Yeah. I mean, how how happy are you that, we only had flip phones when you were in college. You write in that chapter, are we going out or out, <laughs> out? Millennials invented being authentic online and basically go on to say that, you know, you're somewhat grateful or it, it seems like an authentic filter now to just have flip phone shots. Are you grateful for that fact in hindsight? I really, really am. In that chapter, I talk about how in hindsight, I really think that a lot of what affected my confidence in college was the advent of Facebook albums. And it was like, you know, it went from an away message that was like, out with the girls, hit the cell. And I'd be like, out with the girls? I'm the girls and I'm not there. And you kind of, you know, were you were, weren't mm-hmm. included to, you know, not getting invited to a date party or a social function or not, you know, getting rejected from a sorority or whatever. And then having people upload albums for every minute thing they did to the tune of 84 photos. And the ent- the name of the game was to show everyone how well you're doing, that you're living the dream. Like this was the era of personal curation to make it seem like you were unbothered and thriving. And I think that that wore on me because I started to feel a little crazy when I wasn't having that much fun. And I was bombarded with a whole new avenue of interaction with people that were having the time of their lives. And um, I think that at the very least, you know, it's one thing to wake up and go through the photos the next day. I'm grateful that we weren't uploading in real time. And I think we don't even realize how much headspace and energy is wasted in the present moment when we're updating on an ongoing basis. And yeah, I mean, it just required a level of presence that I think my memories from that time are much stronger than they are now. And the irony is now I document things, but retain them poorly. (laughs) Um, And yeah, I think that was kind of special that, you know, 
we were kind of towing the line again between two eras. Uh, we had to be present because we didn't have the speed or the data to be uploading stuff, but we had enough technology where we could, you know, document our memories and show the world this version of ourself on the internet. And I was never the the power photo taker, but you always had those token friends that took photos and posted them of like everything they did. And it was just such an anxiety producing experience <laughs> to wake up to be like you were tagged in XYZ photos. I mean, yes. I mean, yeah, we, Allison and I went to the same college and it was a college that had an early Facebook investor. So we were one of the first schools to get Facebook. So they just got it when we started at this college. And right before we arrived, someone in our class went on Facebook and friended every (laughs) single member of this incoming class, like 500 something people. And somebody started a group on Facebook, remember the group saying, I hate this person. And a bunch of people joined it. And then other people felt bad. Again, none of these people had met in real life yet. This was like in June, July, whatever. Somebody else started a group that said, I love this person. So then it was like before we even arrived on campus, there was like this weird Jets and Sharks things. And then this person was like a minor celebrity on campus because everyone was like, oh, that's her. That's the person that I know sort of from Facebook. And she was, as you described, someone who documented everything she was doing. But it was interesting also, you know, part of what I liked about your book, because I think it gives people space for reflection where their life matches up with yours or it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And you have really extraordinarily thoughtful things to say about, you know, the striving to be popular and what that means and, and that that's been around for a long time. My experience with like early to mid 2000s social media was so different because I didn't have access to the same level of cool people, maybe, or people, Mm. people, I think also there was some, you know, kind of like keeping up with, I think there were also a lot of people who were very transparently just figuring it out and doing weird things. Mm. And that's something I appreciated because we had almost exactly identical college time experiences, but the things I was seeing on social media were quite different. And even today, I have a lot of friends who love to join ironic Facebook groups. And we're Mm -hmm. in a lot of those groups together. (laughs) You know, the groups such as like, we all pretend we're ants trying to move a celery stock together. (laughs) So when people say like, I hate this platform because it's people showing off, you know, really big Christmases, I think, oh, yeah, no, me too. And I go back to my, you know, super strange (laughs) Facebook group where, you know, I'm trolling marketplace. So I think that's where your book serves also as a great historical document, right? You're not trying to say this is how everyone experienced college 2005 to 2009. But here's some similar themes. And then, you know, I was like, wow, I guess I really was that uncool that I don't remember social media being like this. No, but I love that for you. And I think part of the (laughs) reflection was like, God, how obnoxious is it to like, endlessly obsess and chase over these like standards that like a not everybody wants to achieve and b like I thought a lot about how maybe like about being I think it's called like popular adjacent I almost think I I love I love that people if you wanted to niche down or do something else you could and I love hearing examples of people that really enjoyed and sat in that and didn't feel othered because I think the thankless chase of moving targets of like beauty standards and trends leaves you so vacant that I wish that I had just attached mm. myself to things I liked rather than attaching myself to trying to, yeah, 
gain some, you know, social capital in whatever context I was in that wasn't going to last the next time I moved reference groups. Well, and you were in Greek life, too, which is sort of fascinating to me because I wasn't in Greek life. But I imagine that also came with and you describe like kind of the the pressure to perform a certain image of being in college or being Mm -hmm. part of that group. Yeah, because your life's a recruitment tool. That's why I kind of jokingly, you know, Mm. draw cult parallels. I'm sure and the joke is I'm still like, oh, the chapter president's going to be so annoyed with me for calling this already a cult. Like, that's how culty it is. Like, you really, you can't go against the group. And um, it's kind of a fascinating thing where you, your identity is poured into this organizational one. And and they really take organal dis- organizational distinction and, like, laud it as, like, diversity when it's really just trying to flatten everyone's existence to be exuding the values of the sorority so like the younger people will want to join it based on a set of characteristics that make you distinct on campus and um yeah in hindsight I think that I just I think it was another example of my having instincts but being like but no one else is saying anything like why is everybody else seems to love this but I'm like (laughs) why why are you telling me where to be Uh, this is an at-will club and I'm paying you like, how can I be fined for not going Oof. to something because I have to study? I just felt like a, lo- a lot of the things were crazy. And now I'm like, yeah, that was crazy. But at the time, I just assumed I was wrong because no one else was saying it. I mean, listen, it seems like it's still such a strong sector that, like, even the Bama Rush documentary got shut down from within. Oh, like, yeah, it's not on you. And I I, I felt bad for that director because I, I, she must have not understood that, like, Me the too. subjects were never going to agree to that because it would compromise their ability to get in one it so yeah yeah that i felt for her that was a rough situation i also felt bad that the editor i guess suggested she bring her alopecia into it when she couldn't actually get anyone to share anything real and then it like people misread it as like oh she imposed this narrative about herself on it when that's not what was going on that just i felt i know i did too and yeah, I, I wish she had focused on maybe like ousted members or former sorority people because there are a lot of people I think would yes. speak candidly about it. But the, I guess the lore on TikTok was kind of like the real time people trying to get in. And yeah, I remember that. That that was like a crazy thing where I remember feeling so relieved that I got a refresh from Santa of my North Face Denali before recruitment because without it, how how would they how would they <laughs> wow. n- learn more about my character? <laughs> I think your book, you know, and your podcast too, I think they're better off for the fact that you're a joiner, right? Mm. There's a certain kind of content from people who are always contrarian. There's a certain kind of content, you know, thinking about listening to your episode about Plathville, right? Which is Mm -hmm. like also kind of a minor interest of mine. We like to watch extremes, but we don't like to live them, Mm -mm. you know, and and, and your book is really about you've tried a lot of things. You've tried out a lot of communities. And to me, each chapter was sort of you joining in on some level with a community or an Mm -hmm. idea and kind of seeing how it fits. And I will admit, I thought when I first learned about your podcast that they were called Beths because you love Beth March. Little one. And I I was sad to learn that's not true. (laughs) I know. I know. I, but I don't hate that edit either. So I don't really shut it down. <laughs> That's me projecting because I was like, oh, of course. 
I first I thought, wow, this is the first other person. Like this is a big <laughs> podcaster who's coming out strong for Beth March. Most people feel more akin to Joe March. Allison identifies as a I'm Beth, a Beth, obviously. So that's important context here. Uh, yeah. I, I I wish I could make you feel seen in that way, but when people started misunderstanding <laughs> that, I yeah, I was like, honestly, that's great. Like I, I wouldn't hate that misconception at all. So I just I let it I let it simmer. I don't even think I clarify what a Beth is to like very late in the book because I just kind of for kicks, it's more interesting if people put their own interpretation on it. <laughs> like, wow, finally, a space for Beth marches. And, you know, it's okay. I think kind of our whole deal is like we we make our own space inside. But that's okay. I, exactly. I did understand it. That, it. that was really helpful for me, honestly, what you just said, because you're helping me see themes in the book that, like, I maybe couldn't even articulate of how it was, you know, different eras where I was trying different versions of me on for size. And I think uh, part of why, when I was writing it, what I was honestly thinking about is like, a, l- a lot of people who have like the audacity to write books are like, it's a symptom of greatness or uniqueness, or um, there's something like, so incredibly uh, special or different about them. Whereas it's almost like, why would you write a book about being like basic and common and having like a pretty average existence? And it's like, well, that's kind of the point because our stories matter too. And if you, you know, you spend your whole life and the things you love are dismissed and you don't take yourself seriously. And it's kind of like, I don't know, there was something to that of like, it is perfectly okay to have an average existence to like popular things to, uh, you know, say that I have the right to take up space, even though I might not be the most objectively interesting, most interesting person you've ever met. I think that's real. I mean, and you invoke that quote, like, um, well-behaved women rarely make history from Laurel Thatcher Ulrich. And that's like the entire point of her thing, which gets totally misinterpreted, which is like she was writing an article about how it's really hard to capture like normal women's experiences in the past because all the people they get remembered are like people accused of witchcraft or like crimes or just like really rich or notable. So it's like, where are the normies? And as a normie, like that speaks to me. So I respect that. Okay, I'm here for you it. historians um, are helping me so much. I didn't know the context <laughs> of that quote. I think I said the away messages were wrong. Like, I didn't even properly attribute the <laughs> quote because I just saw it. And it's like when you Google a quote, it's like well, anonymous, it's so... Eleanor Roosevelt, Marilyn Monroe. I'm like, who said this? <laughs> oh, no, it's her. It's, well, it's the opening line to like a very rarely read article about wow. women in church records. It's it's actually like a very straightforward opening line, which is her explaining how she reads against the grain to understand what people were, you know, encountering in this church when most of the records are about infractions. So how is she supposed to find in there? Find like normal yeah. people. Um, I'm writing down to read that article because, yeah, that's that's what I wanted to do. Like, I think I in the I don't know if I said that quote in the context of the Beths or who. um, But oh, yeah, because live show like venue staffs always are like they're like busting their own tables. I'm like, yeah, well-behaved women do make history. <laughs> like the, the listeners yes. I met through the podcast who have some of the same experiences or identify with my work in some way. Like I, I really appreciate like being in a room of people like who just are cooperative. Like, I don't know. It's just, it's kind of, it's yes. a funny thing. It's a funny thing I've noticed about listeners that I love. And um, I think that I really, you really do kind of grow up hearing those messages of like, I would always try to feel like I needed to be like a cooler or sexier, more interesting version of myself. And then I would do cringy things because they weren't me at all. Um, 
And I just have found such peace in my adulthood of like sitting in who I am and who I am is not a person that's, you know, going to cause a scene publicly or I'd ra- I'd rather be happy than right. Like, I'm just not like the strongest personality in the room. Um, and, you know, that's OK, too. It's totally OK. I think like a really cool theme of your book, too, is sort of like you settling into your internal voice, like as it like as it comes up against different external influences, like whether it's religion, your sister, like people at school, the slumber party crowd, but also pop culture. Like, obviously, you care a lot about pop culture and we do, too. And it was really cool to read like the things that mattered to you or imprinted on you. Like Charlotte Pickles comes in of Rugrats as like you noticed business women in pop culture and that comes back and Mary Tyler Moore. I'm a fan of both of those business heroes. I didn't realize that, you know, I have to support women in business. But I love that. I wondered, like, you know, you also go in a deep dive about Saved by the Bell. Another thing that I love that has not aged as well in your rewatch, like, you know, can you talk a little bit about that? Like, was it disheartening to revisit some of this stuff? Did some stuff live up to your memory of it? Yeah, it was um, the Saved by the Bell thing was interesting because it was based off of a, a, con- a conversation I had with one of my um former coworkers and friends, and her job now is using market research data at the company I used to work at to understand audience, not just audience measurement data in a quantitative sense, but qualitatively in terms of how people feel about what they're watching. And what they learned is that when a person is seeing their own experience on screen, they're more likely to cite it as inaccurate. And when a person is seeing an experience of another community they're not a part of on screen, they're more likely to cite its accuracy. And hmm. we, t- we talked about this on my podcast and it got my wheels turning because we talk so much about um, representation and diversity in the co- in the context of who we see on screen and what they look like, but not in the context of the writer's room. And what's more pervasive is stories being told from point of views that aren't from people having that experience. If they're told from people perceiving Mm. the experience, that's where stereotypes abound. And that made me rewatch some of my favorite shows. And that's why I rewatched Saved by the Bell, because I really felt like the reason I resisted calling myself a feminist for a lot of my life was because of Jessie Spano, because my impression of her, and I acknowledge that part of this is my, you know, kindergarten misogyny um is like she seemed difficult she pushed back she was she wasn't as smiley and happy and breezy as kelly kapowski um and she really in watching it back it actually was a pleasant experience because i was like i like her she's strong she's standing up for herself she has a lot of really salient points what 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 was wrong with me like why did i take her as being unlikable and that's when i realized the uh kind of manipulation of the laugh track and how that was used in so many 90s programs Mm. to tell the viewer how they should feel about people in a way that wasn't as overt as their words. So it's like Jesse standing Mm. up for women's rights and calling Slater a pig, silence. Slater says, oink, oink, baby, crowd roars. Um, I noticed the same thing in Boy Meets World. Topanga was kind of early Topanga, if you recall, was very earthy, feminist, kind of like portrayed as kind of a hippie activist type. And she kind of shed that persona as time went on, kind of like how quirky Phoebe was in season one of Friends, and she kind of tapered off a bit. Um, and Topanga would say, like, these really profound things. And Corey, in the there'd be silence, and Corey would be like, you're going to be one of those women that doesn't shave her legs. Crowd roars. And um, I'm like, well, well, 
that's an interesting thing that I maybe didn't even so to your point about fact checking and going back I'm just it's like trying to make it make sense why I took away certain things and the the exercise of doing that is honestly as I say to be kind and rewind and contextualize things because I I felt really bad about what a misguided feminist I was for a long time and I felt bad that I was so harsh on Jesse or, you know, these feminist type of characters. But when you go back and see how the culture actively does play a role in manipulating you to feel a certain way about it, you realize that part of it was in your control and you should take accountability, but part of it wasn't. Like, that's how we are a product of our time. And if all of the people in the writers' rooms and the showrunners were men responding to second wave feminist stereotypes and then writing feminist characters as their perception of those stereotypes. I wasn't meeting a feminist and learning from her experience. I didn't have access to anyone that identified that way. So I thought Jesse was reality. Mm. That was a really long answer. Sorry. But I, that, (laughs) no, but that really resonated with that. The whole idea of like laugh track is virtue signaling. It's so like, it makes me want to go back and rewatch some of it myself because I feel like almost like you said, I almost feel bad, like uh, mad at myself. Like, why didn't I pick Mm -hmm. up on that? You know, and I've noticed that rewatching some of Friends, which I was never like the biggest Friends fan, which I know you are a Friends fan, so I don't want to offend you. Friends doesn't hold up in so many ways, my God. It does not. And as a queer person Mm -hmm. watching it, especially like the homophobia throughout that show is like so, and the laugh track to that point is like really encouraging you to laugh at the idea that like someone could be gay is like it's a punchline you know, through the entire sh- program yeah, it's a yeah. punchline right so i mean i i just think that was such a really important point because it's almost like hiding in plain sight literally like as you watch shows and things and i wonder like what has taken the place of a laugh track now to virtue signal in the same way like is the same thing happening as much as i think there was a study that just came out that said you know that hollywood is not that much more diverse in the past couple of years despite all of these me too efforts and different things like there's greater asian american representation on screen but behind the scene in writers rooms it's often like still the same percentage white in yeah. a lot of cases so you know is it just new tactics like i wonder what's going on but that's what it made me think about well and even writing that like mini chapter was an exercise in self-awareness for me in that like look at me i'm a very well represented, you know, segment um, in pop culture. And I'm here writing this book from my own point of view, using millennial as a moniker to and I can't represent 52 million people like I just it is it was in it kind of a mind fucking way of like, uh, wanting to excavate who's responsible for telling the stories that I thought should be my experience. Um, and mm living through the tension of that disconnect uh, and feeling like I was doing something wrong when they were never accurate to begin with and kind of, yeah, concludes with my wanting to encourage people to make art and to create stuff about their experience because it should be coming from the people who actually lived it. And when that's not the case, I really do think it can be harmful. And if I'm going to celebrate pop culture in this book, I also want to explain that I think (laughs) at the same time, it can really be harmful in perpetuating stereotypes so I, I, and like mm. 10 Things I Hate About You, were you guys fans of that movie? Yes. Okay, that was really interesting too because th- that was an example of something that I think they were on the right side of history and I was misinterpreting it because it went over my head. But when I rewatched that, I remember thinking like, um, was Alice and Janney the principal called Cat like a heinous bitch? 
so I was kind of like, oh, if you're a feminist, like you're going to get called a heinous bitch. But when you rewatch it now, you see that the resistance is the cat being utterly unaffected by uh, her own likability. And that's empowering. And I really like that. Yes. Yes. And, you know, she's a poet as well, just yeah. like you. And recently <laughs> she reread that poem yes. publicly. And I was like, you know what, Julia Stiles? Like, you were always that girl. Like, you're right. I have to go now. Actually, rereading that in your book, I was like, it's been on my mind to go rewatch that movie. And I was afraid it wouldn't hold up. But you've convinced me that I need to give it another The best shot. part is when the teacher calls out Kat on her lack of intersectionality by being and like makes fun of her <laughs> for like being a suburban yes. rich white girl. And I just was like, wow, I I think that's the hard part about being young and, and taking cues from media is that. A lot of it's not for you, but it's exciting to you. And there's a lot of room for misinterpretation right. that sometimes results in, you know, funny misunderstandings um, or aspiration. Like Clueless was so important to me. And but like I had no Same. idea what they were talking about half the time um, when like, you know, you're riding the crimson wave. Like, I don't what? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, we were all, yeah, thrown for a loop with that. I also similarly love that movie, and I love how they purposely invent a language of what's cool and lingo that didn't exist so that it would be timeless. Yes. Like, to call someone a total Betty is, like, not... It was invented by Amy um, Heckerling for the movie, and I'm like, that's so cool, because now it is timeless. Like, it's lives. it's so associated with the 90s, but it's also, like, that was never in the 90s. I don't know. I thought that was just a very smart way of That's a that, really interesting but. point. And I, it, I, this is like now a favorite hobby of mine is deep diving on IMDb, creators, showrunners, writers, like the people actually making the story because it really um, adds some a level of clarity to the media that I never thought in, to look into before prior to writing this. And yeah, it was like del even things that because I'm not one of those people that knows who directed everything. Um, but I was like, oh, 10 things I hate about you. Same people's legally blonde. Like that makes so much sense. <laughs> wild yeah yeah incredible wow what a legacy those people i maybe they've retired they should they've like peaked they've done two incredible things or the secret garden and what more do they a, need to do a little princess <sighs> i mean don't get me going on <laughs> that because warning. we're going to be here all day but like christian science the influence of christian science on both of those books because it's by the same woman so Christian science was developed at the same time as something else called Mind Cure, which is like early self-help huh. books. And both of those things at their core, Mind Cure people would say, I think I can. That's where the little engine that could written by someone who believed He's in this. He's a Christian scientist? Christian science would say, no, no, no. So he was a Mind Cure okay. person. But Christian science would believe instead of I think I can, I believe God will. So oh. Christian science still believed if you pray as opposed to thinking something into being. So the woman who wrote both of those books was a Christian scientist. And basically that's why you have in the book someone being like, if you just think you can get out of that wheelchair, you will get out of that wheelchair. And it's wow. like in the secret garden. Yeah, it's a lot. Sorry, I, I could take no, I'm down like taking notes. Hole, but I won't. <laughs> that's like such an early <laughs> version of the where, secret. Like, but like Christian, the secret. It absolutely isn't. Right. Christian, the secret and mind cure and huh. like self-help. And you I liked what you said about self-help lit because I have a similar feeling about it, um, that it can go left um, very quickly. And it's actually hugely manipulative in a lot of different ways. 
Um, but that's what, you know, like if you've ever read The Little Engine That Could, you've actually read a self-help book, but it's an early self-help wow. book. Um, so, you know, I think I can. That's like at the core of self-help. If you just change your thought process, you can change anything unless, as you write, you have a serotonin deficit or you're clinically depressed and you actually need a clinical intervention. So that's where like Christian huh. science and sorry if any Christian scientists listening, it is different than mind cure and self-help as I've described. Um, it's a religious belief, not just a belief that your own mind can heal yourself. So it is different, but they were born at the same time and in Boston, the same place. So it's wow. Kind of You've given me a delightful rabbit hole to go down later. I mean, the, I, I played volleyball with a Christian scientist, and I just remember she wouldn't take Advil. Um, we, we don't need That's to do right. a dive, yeah, but I, I, I have a lot of no. questions. Well, about. I'm just saying, I could talk more about this, but they they believe that you can pray. Oh. Prayer is a form of medicine. I've actually been to Mary Bigaretti's house. Now we're getting far afield. My wife, my now wife, when we were dating, when I finished my dissertation as a treat, she was living in Boston at the time. She arranged for me to go on a house tour of Mary Bigaretti's house. <laughs> And so I went there and I was like, oh my God, like this is a longer story. But I, we were on a private tour. The woman giving the tour was a Christian scientist. I did not want to offend her. However, I noted that in the bathroom, in the bedroom, she had a whole medicine cabinet. Mary Baker Eddy did. So I was <gasps> like, hey girl, what's up? What's this doing here? Wow. So it's it's a whole thing. I could go on the about the Secret this, Garden Reddit Snark Thread's going to be going wild with that tea. I mean, <laughs> it's real. It's real for me. There's a lot with that. She was hoping to get people into Christian Science with both of those books. What? I guess it didn't work on you because you're not a Christian scientist. But I'm shook. I I th my favorite pastime is tying an author's religious origins to what they were trying to get across in a work of fiction a la Mormonism and Twilight. Oh, wow. <laughs> the Twilight of it all. That's that's a lot. Like, whatever happened with, like, if Bella had a period, like, why wasn't she killed immediately? You don't have to answer oh, that now, but just think I about think it. I think about this all the time. Why did Jasper okay. lunge into her when she got a paper cut, you know, shoving her into yes! a cadenza? At the birthday party, and it's like, I think there's something else that happens that's more than a paper cut monthly. <laughs> and she's seemingly walking around and you guys aren't trying to kill her. It's a, What's the happening? Vampires being bloodthirsty is a broader me metaphor for like men not being able to control themselves and Bella being responsible for how they respond to her. Oh, wow. It's dark. And and wow. I, I wrote a chapter about that and it's called, lot. actually, it's a long story. <laughs> I, um, the, the Jesse Spano thing was called something else. And then I had a chapter called Saved by the Bella Swan. And then like, there, I wow. it was like a, it, I wrote like all this stuff and had to figure out how to put it together. And then the Twilight religious allegory thing, I just kind of had a moment of like, you know what? I don't need to ruin everything for people. <laughs> Let's let some things maybe lie. maybe that's its own book. <laughs> like maybe that's its own, the Twilight yeah, I thought maybe I could dive into that with like if I ever venture down to talking about like perceptions of parenting or pregnancy in um, popular culture because the punishing nature of Bella's child rearing experience was, you know, did give me a, a pretty intense fear of going into labor. But again, sorry. For I mean, day. yeah, I mean, let's 
get into Renesmee. that. I mean, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but like Renesmee, the worst name of a character in possibly human history. When I got to that part of the book, I was like, is this for real? I was on like a cursed family trip when I was reading that. And I was like just having to hide myself away, but deeply embarrassed about why I was like, I can't be with you right now because I have to read about what's happening to Renesmee. And people were like, is that an actual human name? And I was like, I just... The shame is too great. I actually can't say more about this right now, but it's taken over my life. Just let it happen. But I mean, you talk about kind of like your understanding of parenting coming from pop culture. Allison mentioned the parrot trap before, and that's the the title of one of the chapters on this. Like now you are a parent. So like we have we know something about your life that's not in this book, sort of, which is like you now have Teddy. Like has you write kind of about like you weren't sure if you were going to like all parts of parenting, which I thought was very honest and real. I'm thinking about becoming a parent in the not too distant future. That spoke to me. Like, where are you at with this on this journey? Yeah. You know, it's funny. The Parent Trap was one of the first essays I wrote, and I wrote it kind of in the throes of grief, grief from a pregnancy loss and then finished it when I was doing IVF. And I mean, a lot of the like book is underscored, I think, by a very 2020 three or sorry 2022 frustration about women's issues and mm. how they pertain to reproductive rights and um it i think there's i i was feeling a lot of frustration by how much time i wasted on like male validation and how uh you know you we come this far and we're still so many of our experiences are still marked by such invisibility like even to the point where we're literally on the floor of congress like we're invisible and i think i was just feeling a lot of feelings and yeah the there was a lot of weaving themes through that that I think I would probably write differently now, but I almost love that that it's a time capsule of how I felt in a very specific moment for people going through that specific moment. I think that the hard part about parenting advice is you can kind of rewrite history in retrospect. And, um, you know, a lot of what if you if you're trying to get pregnant and like kind of in the throes of fertility stuff, for example, people aren't, you know, and your friends already have kids, like they're not really in your same headspace. And that is like a very specific experience. Not a lot of people can understand and it can be isolating. And similarly, very few parents are going to admit they did not want children or did not like children. And I almost wanted to be able to say like, I'm, I I don't know, it's a sticky fingers for me, like not really that into kids and not be able to say that I never felt that way because I did. And when I was trying to figure out if I wanted kids and people would say like, you're never ready. I'd be like, but how not ready? I need details uh, to understand <laughs> yes. if you're like me and if I should be moving forward. So anyway, yeah, I, I do it through this like broader parent trap um, analogy because I remember watching it and it was very unpopular as a kid to be drawn to Meredith Blake. But she she embodied more of what I wanted for my life. Um, and I, I always right. kind of liked the businesswoman type characters than the softer maternal type. And um, and. Yeah, I think that now, to your question about where I stand now, um, I think that I've learned so much about how, yeah, the lived experience is very different than my assumptions of it. And I think what's at stake with parenting is interesting because it's like a decision that's very permanent, That, but there's so much unknowns going into it. And one of my biggest learnings per me talking about not being maternal or feeling like I'm more of a Meredith Blake is um, I've learned that there's a huge difference between being maternal and being domestic and I think I was conflating Mm. not being a person that's very domestic um or 
embodies the type of motherhood stereotype that was kind of projected onto a lot of things I consumed growing up. And um, you're if you if it's your kid, like you're maternal, or you're you're its mom. Like you, you'll you'll care for its basic needs. I'm more than capable. And just because <laughs> I didn't really subscribe to a lot of the traits in like that cult of domesticity, that's a product of like you know U.S. 1950s propaganda. Like doesn't mean I was going to be a bad parent. And I think in hindsight, I'm like I'm really grateful I didn't make decisions on assumptions that were just fundamentally untrue, or anxieties that didn't have to mm. do with like what would actually happen. Because I'm I think I'm a great mom and I'm absolutely capable and that has absolutely nothing to do with me being interested in other people's kids or um, being able to cook or whatever else it is, you know? Absolutely. But yeah, I I appreciate you saying that resonated with you because I I think, you know, I think even you feel a little bit bad saying like, I don't know if I want this. And then when you have it, I never want my son to think that I wasn't interested. But I do think that not a lot of conversations happen in the trying to decide um, and I, and people will say really, I think, you know, harmful generalizations. Like if it's not a hell yes, it's a hell no. And I'm like, huh, that's not how it works. Uh, <laughs> you deserve to, um, yeah. you deserve to explore your uncertainty. And I think in doing that, you figure out where your fears come from. And I realized my fears weren't that it, I didn't want kids at all. It was just that I didn't think I was the type of mom I saw other moms being, and therefore that must mean I'll be a bad one. I was just going to say, I think for our listeners specifically, you know, you can take the braids out of your Kirsten and be an amazing parent. I think that's like important for people to hear. Wow. That's profound. That there's not a straight line. Real full circle moment. Real full circle moment. (laughs) Real, right. It's all about like doing (laughs) things. What I learned from a lot of my listeners too is like, we always forget that what something looks like is something done on your own terms and it doesn't have to be anything. Mm-hmm. And I think it and took we'll... me a long time to realize that um, in the book and in life that, um, you know, for the Spice Girls of it all, do what you want, what you really, really want. <laughs> wow. That's Thank beautiful. <laughs> that That seems like, I don't know how we can top the Spice Girls. So I feel like we should wrap there but we so appreciate you taking all this time to share with us about your book we still loved reading it we hope everyone goes out and checks it out go and see kate on tour um you know this has just been you know what a thrill thank you thank you so much everyone thank you for all of your support please check out kate kennedy and one in a millennial if you go on her website you can check out information on her book tour she might be coming to a city near you and you can also check out her podcast be there in five Um, if you want to be in touch with us you can find us on instagram at dolls of our lives podcast you can email us at dolls of our lives pod at gmail.com you can contact allison on instagram at allison horrocks And you can find me at Mimi Mahoney on Instagram. I so love hearing from everyone. We both do. Uh, We just really appreciate all of your support, your kind words about the book, just like little funny things you send me. Like I just like I die laughing. People send me stuff that's like all over the place, like Mariah Carey memes, life updates they think I need to know. And I, I know we both just love that. And I know it takes me a minute to write back to everyone, but I always do. And 
you know, so thanks for your patience in advance. Um, you know, we love hearing from you, please. And this community has meant so much to us. And we just want to say again, thanks again for your support. So we'll be back on our next episode, continuing our Julie coverage, and we hope to see you there. Mm-hmm.